Well, I've been looking forward to this for many weeks uh, now, and uh, as I was driving up this morning, I just was really quite overwhelmed with just how many times uh, the Lord has uh, intertwined uh, my own life with the life of this congregation, how many ways I've been influenced by this congregation. I first heard about HBC uh, through Phil Marshall uh, many, many years ago, who was a member here and then went on to become one of our pastors. Uh, one of the most uh, eligible single ladies to ever grace Emmanuel Baptist Church, and there have been a lot, uh, was Lynn Blakeman, uh, who became a, just a dear sister in Christ to us, and we were so impressed with the Lord's work uh, in her life. And of course, the Lord gave her to you in those formative years, and then we had her for those final years, and the Lord took her from us this month. And uh, we still get to be with her children uh, every week, and it's great to see Ruth this morning, and we get to see her on a regular basis. Uh, Heritage, I think, was the first church I was ever invited to preach at um, outside of Emmanuel. And so, and on top of that, our first ever elders retreat was in the old building. Pastor Ted gave us a space over there. And, uh, and Pastor Ted, I think, was one of the first people I ever invited to come preach at Emmanuel. Um, I, I have a um, prank phone call story. Um, I actually had to have mine explained to me. I didn't know what had hit me. Um, I just got this phone message, and uh, it was some hillbilly, uh, basically uh, with the strongest, thickest Eastern Kentucky accent you can imagine, informing me that he needed me to marry him and his cousin as quickly as possible, or he was going to have to take this to the courthouse. And I, th- I think someone finally explained to me that this was Pastor Ted. And he, he wore this sort of staid Reformed Baptist camo, but it was all a mirage. Uh, the real man was a wild man. And, uh, and I was very, very thankful to know him. One of the most striking things I ever heard Pastor Ted say was that when he grew up, he'd like to be like his son Jonathan. And with... Uh, 21-year-old of my own, I know exactly what he means. I didn't at the time, but I, I, do, I do now. Uh, when my wife uh, was diagnosed with cancer uh, 16 years ago, uh, it was actually the same uh, weekend of Jay and Lynn's um, wedding. And uh, in the course of their wedding ceremony, um, I had um, offended a number of the Catholics who were present uh, through, my, through my preaching and they had taken it upon themselves to tell me how bad my wedding sermon was uh, after the after the service. And so I was walking down the hallway of this church in Louisville, thinking, "Man, did I was I over the top? Should I have said? Did I say too much for a wedding sermon?" Uh, and so, but because this was the same week that my wife had been diagnosed with cancer, uh, the elders of HBC, uh, Sam and Joe and Keith and Ted had asked if they could meet in a nursery to pray for my wife. So here I was heading to go pray for my wife who had cancer, just getting kind of reamed out in the hallway of a glorious wedding ceremony, not really sure if I had done the right thing in all the things I'd said. And I walked into the nursery and Pastor Keith was there. That was amazing! That was great! And uh, so I felt good about my message uh, after, after that. Uh, one of the most disheartening moments of my life. Honestly, I can remember it very poignantly. 
I remember exactly where I was when I heard that the elder board of this church had split and the congregation uh, had split as well. And uh, my heart grieved, and I thought, boy, if, if a man as faithful as Pastor Ted is seeing that kind of trial, what hope from, is a little bit self-centered, but what hope is there for me to be spared that kind of grief? And um, so the, I've, I've really just seen marvelous things from this congregation and been impacted very wonderfully. I've sorrowed over the, the, the losses as of this congregation. And uh, just I'm honestly thrilled to see your health in recent years and to hear of the success of the gospel over recent years. So I, I count it a distinct privilege to be here and to spend time to spend time with you. I was supposed to uh, preach on the next 50 years, but I've just been informed those may be cut short. Um, uh, so uh, um, I'll try to do something similar. Um, to, to what I had planned. Um, I want to read with you, if, if we could, from Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 through 21. Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 through 21. And I think what you'll notice as we read through this passage is it's one of those passages that is it's simply immediately attractive. It's, it, it, it stirs immediate desire. Uh, not all passages are like that. The Apostle Peter tells us that there are some passages that just make your head spin. You're not sure what they mean. It's sort of comforting to me that Peter read Paul and said there's some, some things in Paul that are hard to understand, because of course we've all felt that. And we felt that about a few things Peter wrote, for that matter. Uh, there are other passages that are just immediately challenging and abrasive, and we need that as sinners. But there are some passages that for the Christian are immediately, heartwarming seems too light, but they are immediately attractive. They're, 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 our souls immediately resonate with what we read there, and th- this is one of them. And I want to read it to you this morning. Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 through 21. The Apostle Paul, under the inspiration and authority of the Holy Spirit, writes, For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named that according to the riches of His glory, He may grant you to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to Him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to Him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. 
Amen. Father, we are unspeakably weak. And even if we have a special Sunday, it doesn't make us any stronger. We are in need of Your power and Your strength to come in our weakness, not only the weakness of the preacher, but the weakness of the listeners. We need You to help our mouth and our ears. Lord, we want to not only learn to pray this prayer, but we long to see it answered. And we pray that You would move among the hearts of this people who You love. In Jesus' name, Amen. Well, many years ago, I read about a scientific experiment that had been conducted. And the experiment went like this. Uh, Two baby monkeys were taken and placed in two different cages. Two baby monkeys were taken and placed in two different cages. And in, in the one cage, there was a mama monkey built out of chicken wire with a bottle and a nipple Uh, at the appropriate place on this chicken wire mama monkey. And the child, this baby monkey, was left in that cage. All the milk they needed to survive was there. In the other uh, cage, another baby monkey was placed in there with a chicken wire mama, the bottle, the milk. But this time, they put a hot water bottle in the model of the mama monkey, They covered it in fur. And so in both cages, you had a baby monkey with all the milk they needed. In one, they were going to get the milk from a wire mama monkey. And in the other, they were going to get the milk from a mama monkey that was warm and covered in soft fur. The first monkey died. They died not because of a lack of appropriate nutrition, but because of a lack of warmth, because of a lack of tenderness, because of a lack of experience that went along with the nutrients they needed. The prayer we're looking at this morning is essentially a prayer asking God to meet His people with His power and His presence. The Ephesians were a people who knew doctrine. Ephesians chapter 1, if you, often we think about uh, Ephesians chapter 1 the way a Reformed Baptist preacher would preach on it, which is about seven years through Ephesians chapter 1. You know, a Reformed Baptist preacher is the kind of preachers who can say, this is Katie, was born when I was preaching Ephesians 1.1. This is Sally, uh, Ephesians 1.17. Anyway, old joke. But the Ephesians were a people who knew doctrine. Paul could just rattle off election, redemption, forgiveness, sealing, without explaining any of it in the first chapter of Ephesians, because the people knew doctrine. But here in Ephesians chapter 3, Paul stops with this people who knew doctrine and prays that they would feel doctrine. That they would taste and see that the Lord is good. That the catechisms that they would know, and if you can let me uh, anachronize for a second, would not just fill their minds, but would melt their hearts. 
And that's why you get such immediately attractive language that Christ might dwell in the heart by faith. That you might be rooted in Christ. Grounded in Christ. That you might know how deep and how high and how wide and how long is the love of Christ. And know the knowledge of Christ that surpasses knowledge. We will die if we only know the nutritious truths of the Gospel. And we will come to maturity if those truths are not only known to us, but actually begin to overwhelm our hearts. And that reality comes only by prayer. So what I want to do is I want to focus this morning on Paul's reason for praying. Then we'll look at Paul's requests that are the center of the prayer. And then we'll look finally at the results Paul desired. So Paul's reason for praying, his requests in praying, and the results Paul desired in prayer. We'll begin with the reason Paul prayed, because that is where Paul starts. Do you see that? In verse 14, for this reason. There was a reason Paul prayed. There was something particular that moved Paul to pray. That's why he gives us these three words, for this reason. I'm not just praying out of nowhere. There is a particular reason why I'm praying. Now, there's a lot of debate about what exactly is the reason. And uh, I believe I understand what the reason was is, and I, I have this understanding for two reasons. One, I've read a lot of commentaries. And two, I understand the preacher's rabbit trail. You know the preacher's rabbit trail, right? It seems that all, God, all those God calls to ministry are not only anointed by God to stick with the text, but occasionally, in fact quite consistently, to go off on a rabbit trail. And it's very important that you understand this because when you see the for this reason, you might be tempted to just look in the immediate context. If you've been trained well, you'd say, okay, it says for this reason in verse 14, so the reason must come back in verse 13. But no, 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 no. That would be to miss the preacher's rabbit trail. So if you would just go back to chapter 3, verse 1. And what three verse, what three words do you see there in chapter 3, verse 1? For this reason. And then the translators have done us a very fine service in including something that's not in the original Greek, but can only be described as the very long dash. If you'll read that in chapter 3, verse 1, it says, For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, and then do you see it? Very long dash. Now, there must have been a translation committee somewhere in the world that says, how do we communicate that he's just gone off the rails? Someone said, I propose a very long dash. And so they, they inserted a very long dash. And what happened here is that Paul is about to pray. He says, for this reason, and he's about to pray, but then he drops that he's a prisoner of Christ Jesus. And then being a good pastor, he realizes, you can't just drop that you're in jail and not explain it. And so he takes verses 2 through 13 to explain the reason why he's in jail. And I'll 
let you look at those verses yourself this afternoon, but you'll see very clearly that he's trying to persuade the Gentiles that it's a good thing that he's in jail for them. It's in fact their glory that he's in jail for them. And so what happens, he says, for this reason, I'm going to pray. Oops, just mentioned that I'm in jail. Better explain why I am in jail. And then in verse 14, he comes back to his prayer. Which means that the reason Paul is praying, if you didn't follow any of this, follow this. The reason Paul is praying is not found in verse 13, but is found just at the end of chapter 2. And there what we find is that Paul is praying because the people of God have been made the new temple of God. You see that in verse 21. Paul speaks about in whom, in Christ, the whole um, structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. He has just declared to this Jewish and Gentile church, this church of multi-ethnic backgrounds, that they are together being built into one temple. They are being built into the holy temple of God. They're being built into the place where God dwells. Now, it's almost impossible to be a Christian. Certainly impossible to be a Christian with any health running in your soul and not love that thought. That I am and we are where God dwells. To be born again is to have the desire placed in your heart that David expressed. As the deer pants for streams of living waters, so my soul Pants for thee, O God. In fact, this ought to encourage you. Many Christians are depressed, but some Christians don't realize that their depression ought to encourage them. Because a lot of Christians are experiencing what can only be regarded as Christian depression. Why are they depressed? They know not enough of the presence of God. Now, how many unbelievers are walking around this morning going, if only I felt closer to Jesus? And so sometimes we miss the fact that the discouragement and depression the Christians feel is not an indicator that they aren't saved, but is actually a solid indicator that they are. And so here's the Apostle Paul telling these Christians that they are being built into the very temple of God, the very place where God would dwell. And I think it might help us if we had some of the background that I know was running through Paul's mind when he talked about the temple. You see, whenever a temple or a tabernacle, which was the precursor of the temple, was built in Israel, it was bigger than a Chick-fil-A opening. It was more important, more glorious, more wonderful than the grand opening of any building before or since. You you get the recording of the first completion of the tabernacle in Exodus chapter 40. The very end of Exodus chapter 40. Exodus is is one of those, uh, you know, many people have had uh, Bible reading plans that failed when they get to the numbers. But many have even failed in the last half of Exodus. Right? Because the first half, it's stories, ten plagues, Exodus, leaving Egypt. But then the last half is instructions for how to build a Near Eastern temple. 
But at the end of that, at the end of those instructions, you get these words in Exodus chapter 40, verse 34. Then the cloud, the cloud of God's presence, covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Do you see what happened? When the temple was, the tabernacle was completed, Moses had to stop work for the day because something so filling, so overwhelming came that is God's special presence. You know God is present everywhere, but He does not bring His special presence everywhere. He brought it home to that tabernacle. He did the same thing in 2 Chronicles chapter 5, verse 13, and maybe you'd turn there to 2 Chronicles chapter 5, what Chuck Swindoll called the pots and pans of the Old Testament. You kind of got to dig around in the back of the drawer uh, to find 2 Chronicles chapter 5. But here you have the completion of Solomon's temple. And notice what happens at the completion of the temple in 2 Chronicles chapter 5, verse 13. It says, The house, the house of the Lord, was filled with a cloud so that the priest could not stand to minister because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled. Notice that filled language. We're going to hear that again. The house of God. Tabernacles built. God's glory fills it to the point where man is overwhelmed. The temple is built. God's glory fills it to the point where man is overwhelmed. And then, of course, in John 1.14, we're told this. The Word became flesh and dwelled, and many translators have offered the translation, tabernacled among us. And we beheld His glory. You know, it's interesting, I did a little study. I was thinking to myself, I wonder if we should see that pattern repeated again. And sure enough, as I did the little study, I looked at the first, I looked to the Gospels, and sure enough, what do you find when people respond to Jesus? They're astounded. They're overwhelmed. They marvel. They worship. What the Apostle Paul is saying in Ephesians chapter 3 is God is not just filling a goatskin tabernacle or a stone temple and miraculously not even just filling His own beloved Son, but He's filling us. He's filling us with His presence. And it's in that light that we should be understanding Paul's language. Why does he turn all this overwhelming language, how deep and how high and how wide and how long, and to be filled with all the fullness of God? It's because he's praying in light of the fact that we are the fulfillment of all that was promised in the Old Testament in terms of God's presence, His special presence being with His people. Now, when I think about 50 more years of a church's life, 
you know, if God gives HBC 50 more years, you will have existed for almost 5% of all of church history. That's amazing. When I think about 50 more years, I can't think of anything more glorious than knowing more of God's presence among His people. I mean, I want to see missions to the nations. I want to see evangelism here. But all of that is just overflow from a people who have dwelled in the presence of God. So what moves Paul to pray is that God is dwelling among His people and God is filling His people. So he makes two requests. He makes two requests. And the first request is a very encouraging request for any weak Christian, which is all of them. And he says, he says in uh, Ephesians chapter 3, verse uh, 16, he prays that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being. Now it's very wonderful when God gives displays of His power. A couple miracles were prayed for this morning. Miracles of healing. And it's very wonderful when God displays those kinds of miracles in our midst. I love it and we should pray for those zealously. But the power we generally need on a daily basis is not the power of God displayed outside of us, but it's the power of God strengthening our inner being. That's where we're weak, isn't it? That's where we're weak. That's where we lack the resolve to overcome temptation. And so here's the Apostle Paul praying that you'd be strengthened in your inner being. It's very similar. I love the prayer in Colossians chapter 1, where he prays that you'd be strengthened with all His glorious might for endurance and patience with joy. And that's about exactly where we need it, isn't it? I mean, if someone says to you, hey, tomorrow you'll have an ultimate moment, you're all geared up. But it's that endurance and patience with joy. It's relatively easy to mount up on wings like eagles. It's the walking and not growing weary that about kill you. And so here's Paul praying that you'd be strengthened in your inner being. And notice he prays that you be strengthened in your inner being according to, according to his riches of his glory. Now God displays his glory in all of creation, but he especially displays his glory in the glory of his grace in Christ. And what Paul is saying here is, is here, according to all those riches that you'd be strengthened. Now David Jackman has put this very well. And he points out, isn't it great that Paul doesn't ask that we be strengthened from God's riches, but according to God's riches? Imagine that you were tasked uh, with uh, raising some funds for a particular Christian ministry that you uh, were particularly passionate about. Someone arranged a meeting between you and a millionaire Christian and you asked this uh, very wealthy Christian if they would uh, give some money to maybe sending this missionary out or uh, providing for this rescue home or whatever it may be. And, and, the, and the, the millionaire said, I would be delighted. I'm so glad you asked. And he wrote you a check for 20 bucks. And uh, he said, thank you very much. Now, millionaires don't owe you their money. 
you should be thankful for that $20. But we would have to conclude that they had given from their riches, not according to their riches. If they gave according to their riches, they would hand you a blank check and say, whatever you need. Whatever you need to make this work, you, you fill it in on that check and we will do it for you. And then you would say that I was given according to riches. And here the apostle Paul is, is praying not that we would get a drop from God's riches, not that we would stick our tongues out and hope we don't uh, starve to death, but rather we would get according to the riches. Whatever we need from these riches would be given to us to be strengthened. That's what Paul is praying for. And that's how we ought to pray for one another. You know what I know about churches that last 50 years? I know because I'm coming on 20-some at my own church. It just starts to feel like a lot of things will never change. Not only in the life of the congregation, but in our own personal lives. You know, the first three, four years of fighting sin is pretty exciting. Kind of an adrenaline rush. And then it's just old. And you need to remember there's more power than you know. And where you've come so far is not the end of where God is able to take you. And you need to pray for yourself and for one another that you would be strengthened according to, not according to the last 10 years, not according to how your devotions went this morning, but according to the riches of God's glory. That's the measure that you can expect to change. Now, what's neat here is that Paul says that when we're strengthened with power through the Spirit in our inner being, there's a reason for it. And the reason is so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Now that's a bit strange. If you've got decent theology, you know that's a little strange. It seems a little strange to be praying that you'd be strengthened so that Christ might dwell in your hearts. Doesn't Christ dwell in every believer? Yes, Christ dwells in every... We need to do that catechism question uh, next week. Christ indeed dwells in every believer. There are not two tiers of Christianity, some with Christ some without Christ. Every Christian has Christ. To not have Christ is to not be a Christian. So what's Paul doing here? Praying that you would be strengthened so that Christ may dwell. And the trick here, the secret here, is that Paul is indicating something much more like settled down. So that Christ might settle down in your heart through faith. D.A. Carson illustrates this really wonderfully. Uh, some of you have done home renovations in your life. Uh, some of you uh, wish you were doing home renovations. Some of you wish that the home renovations would end. But, 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 but when you're doing home renovations, what happens? You move into a house and you got it maybe on a deal or maybe you got the dream home. But whoever was there before you thought that carpeting the bathroom with an olive green carpet would be a good idea. You know, they thought that was a good idea. And, and the remnants of whatever was cool home decor are left all over your home. Maybe there's a basement with an orange wall in it or something like that. Uh, we moved into our home that we're in now, and for the first two years, we had a, a back door that opened up to your death. There was supposed to be a deck there, but we had no deck there. We had to keep some two-by-fours there so we wouldn't just spill it over into, in, into our death. But over the years, you, you repaint it the color you like. 
and you finally get rid of those nasty couches and you get some couches that you like. And at our house, we finally built that deck, which I really like. And as the house begins to be transformed, it becomes a place where you feel comfortable settling down. And let's just be honest, when Christ saves us, He indwells us, but we are not a comfortable place for Him to be. Many believers take Christ to prostitutes. You see that in 1 Corinthians? Uh, Many in this room take Him to pornography. Uh, Christ is there at the worst marital spats when we both say and do the most selfish things. And what does He do over the years? He strengthens us according to His glorious might so increasingly our lives become a place where He can settle down. Where He feels comfortable with the finances and comfortable with what's happening in the living room and comfortable with what's happening in the bedroom. The goal of the Christian life in many ways is that Christ would be able to settle down in every part of it. And when Christ settles down in every part of our lives, there are rich spiritual benefits. Do you see that in the text? So that you being rooted and grounded in love. The fact is, the more Christ is enabled to settle down, the more we sink the roots of our lives deep into His love and draw up the nourishment from His love, and the more our lives are put on the foundation of His love and our lives become stable. We heard that testimony from the sister this morning about the the young mother's class that she took. What was happening there? Christ was being taught and her, her heart was becoming a place where He could settle down. And then that strengthens you and undergirds you for a lifetime. Christ may be exposing something in your life this morning or in this season of your life and anytime he does, it's, it's nervous, it's funny, we give our lives to Christ, we trust Christ, it always goes well for us. And then when he asks for the next area of our life, we get nervous. But here's the fact, every place we surrender for him to settle down, it just becomes more and more of an occasion for us to soak up his love. And you'll never regret giving any sin over to Christ and asking him to give you the righteousness in which he can settle down. First request is this request for power. The second request is a request for God's presence, and specifically for the presence of his love. So do you see that there? Uh, Paul prays that you may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. Now again, Paul's not praying for intellectual knowledge here, is he? He's not praying for anything that's against intellectual knowledge. But he's certainly not praying just for intellectual knowledge. He's praying that you'd have strength to comprehend that God's love is something you can drown in that it's deep and high and wide and long. D.A. Carson again says, Paul is not asking that his readers might be able to articulate the greatness of God's love in Christ Jesus 
or to grasp with the intellect alone how significant God's plan of redemption is. He is asking that they might have power to grasp dimensions of that love in their experience. Doubtless that includes intellectual reflection, but it cannot be reduced to that alone. I love the way Paul puts it because it just gets the perfect balance. He says that you would know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. Now, one person has said it this way, and I like this. It's not love that bypasses knowledge. That's what so much of evangelicalism has gone after is experiences that bypass knowledge. But among those of us who've reclaimed knowledge as central, there's often this missing of the fact that what we know can be surpassed in a way that's fully consistent with what we know. I was talking to a dear friend at Emmanuel, the church I pastor, uh, just a few weeks ago. And this brother uh, spent his youth building a business, a successful business. And uh, now really through no fault of his own, that business is being threatened really to ruin all of its core principles by just different actors in the midst of things. And... Uh, I asked him, how are you doing? We, we, first, we talked about the logistics of how these folks are trying to take down his business and the way it's worked. And then finally, I turned things to, but how, how are you doing? And he said to me, you know, I, I was feeling heavy. I was feeling anxious. I was feeling a lot of weight. And then I sat down the other day and God's love just began to flood my soul. And I began to laugh. That's good. That's an important part of Christian growth. Is to be ministered to by the love of God in those hard situations. R.A. Torrey, great preacher of the last century, founded Biola a College. Uh, R.A. Torrey would beg God for more of his experienced presence. And finally, uh, one day, God began to pour out His Spirit so deeply and so powerfully on Tori's soul that Tori had to ask Him to stop. That's my goal for all the Christians I pastor. Unfortunately, many of us haven't asked Him to start. Thomas Goodwin, the great Puritan author, would tell the story of a, a little boy I was walking along, holding his dad's hand. And when you're walking along, holding your dad's hand, it's all good. But then he looked over and he saw that the dad all of a sudden in one moment just grabbed the child up and just embraced him and hugged him as deeply as he could. And then set him back down and they continued to walk. How much warmer is the hand holding after you've had the hug? And what's Paul praying for here? He's praying that we would know the love of Christ, that we wouldn't simply do gospel math. If you know any theology, you can do gospel math backwards and forwards. Man is a sinner. God is holy. Sin and holy do not equal. Solve for X. You're going to have to have Christ who can reconcile a holy God to sinful man. I know how this works. And yet we can wind up unmoved and it's clear when the Scriptures say God demonstrates His own love for us in this. That while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. 
or the Apostle John, in this is love. Not that we loved God, but that He loved us and gave His Son to be a propitiation or a sacrifice of atonement for our sins. Those things are supposed to make us melt. And so the Apostle is praying that we would not only know, but experience the love of Christ. So we've seen the reason Paul prayed. It's because God's people have become God's temple. We've seen the requests there for power and for God's loving presence. And now I want to move to the results. I want you to notice the results. Why is Paul praying this? Why is Paul praying that God's people would be empowered and they would know His presence. Why is he praying this? And he tells us in verse 19, he says, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. Why, Paul? Here's why. That you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now, first of all, where's that fullness language coming from? Tabernacle was filled. The temple was filled. Christ was filled. He wants us to be filled. But I want you to notice something. That Paul is praying the believers would be filled with all of God's fullness. What does that mean? Well, it means that we would be as Christ-like as Christ. And when I say as Christ-like as Christ, I don't just mean we would do Christ or act Christ, but we would actually know what Thomas Chalmers called the life of God and the soul of man that we would actually really be overflowing with Christ. But this fullness language comes up repeatedly in the book of Ephesians, most famously in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18, where you get very clearly the idea of what it means. Do not be drunk with wine. That's one way to be controlled. By too much bourbon, too much wine. That leads to debauchery. But... Be filled with the Spirit. That is, be under the Spirit's control. Be filled with the Spirit's life. Now, here's what I want you to notice. No one ever grew to the fullness of Christian maturity without experiences of God's love. Do you see the connection? It's all in that word, that. Do you see it? It says, I want you to know how deep and how high and how wide is the love of Christ. I want you to know uh, the love that surpasses knowledge. Why, Paul? That you could actually be mature. That you could... Now listen, what if I told you that I had a parenting philosophy that scrupulously avoided all hugging my children? I just told them to grow up. Now let me tell you, this is extremely effective. If you haven't tried this, show your kids no emotional or physical affection and tell them to do better. Has anyone tried it? It's amazing. No. It's amazing. Just Google hugging. It's amazing what the results are. Hugging releases dopamine. Hugging eases depression. Hugging improves sleep. It's unbelievable what an embrace will do. And it's amazing. Many who've understood the authority of the Father in the home have not understood the love of the Father in the home. Many who've understood the authority of the husband over the wife 
have not understood the love of the husband for the wife. But Paul knows those things go together. He knows that tasting God's love is essential for living Christ's life. And so he sees calling on God for more of God's loving presence as not optional, but essential for making mature disciples. We have to remember that we are part of a movement. You know, when you tell, hear these stories of I wasn't quite in line with my church and I came to a church like this one, those are the stories of many of my people as well. We're part of a movement that has rejected the overemphasis on the experiential in favor of a movement that centers on God's revelation in Scripture. Amen. I want to be part of that movement. But once you stick your nose in the Scriptures, you know what you find there? A lot of talk about the experiential. And what happens when you get just the intellectual without the experiential is you actually have people who know how to define maturity but can't live it. And so what's the vision for the next 50 years or less? Hopefully less. It's a people who know the strength of God's power and it's a people who know the warmth of God's love. And the result is mature disciples. Now I want to turn with you to Psalm 67 for 10 seconds and then I'm going to close because I know at this point I am in direct competition with brisket. And so I want to, I want to be very, I want to be very wise in how I use the rest of my time. But I want you to, I want you to notice that what I am talking about here is not at odds with the missions and missional vision that I know has been so important in recent years in the life of this church. I remember Pastor Ted saying to me, our church has done very well. If you, if you break the Christian life into up worshiping God, in pastoral care and out missions, I remember Pastor Ted saying to me, our church is good at up. And I want us to be good at out too. And I would say the same thing of my own people. But they're not at odds at all. Look what it says in Psalm 67. May God be gracious to us and bless us and make His face to shine upon us. That's a lot of Old Testament way of saying what we just looked at in Ephesians chapter 3. Lord, let your face shine upon us. Let us know your steadfast love. Beam your face on us like a bright, sunshiny day. And then notice this. That your way may be known on earth, your saving power among all nations. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. As you seek God, for a greater display of His power. And as you seek God together for a greater outpouring of His love, I would encourage you also to expect God to a, do a greater work, reaching work to this city, but also this world.
Let's pray. Father, we come before you. We thank you very much for your word. We thank you for the love of God in Christ Jesus. We ask you to forgive us for being content to know and not experience. And we ask you, Lord God, that you'd pour out your spirit so that we know what it is to have your face shining upon us and the nations being drawn in magnetically to your glory. I pray for this congregation that you would bless them in this very special Sunday and also that you would bless them in the coming years. And we do pray, Lord God, that you would come, Lord Jesus. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.